0: Hi, folks, and welcome to Dilemma Myth, the podcast that explores myths. Unusual beliefs and weird history from the perspective of an obsessive amateur to figure out why they fascinate us and why they matter. This is Episode 1 Cargo Cults. The scene is a jungle airstrip high in the mountains of New Guinea. Nearby are thatch roofed hangars, a radio shack, and a beacon tower made of bamboo. On the ground is an airplane made of sticks and leaves. The airstrip is manned 24 hours a day by a group of natives wearing nose ornaments and shell armbands. At night, they keep a bonfire going to serve as a beacon. They are expecting the arrival of an important flight, cargo planes filled with canned food, clothing, portable radios, wristwatches, and motorcycles. The planes will be piloted by ancestors who have come back to life. Why the delay? A man goes inside the radio shack and gives instructions into the tin can microphone. The message goes out over an antenna constructed of string and vines. Do you read me? Roger and out. From time to time they watch a jet trail crossing the sky. Occasionally, they hear the sound of distant motors. The ancestors are overhead. They're looking for them. But the whites in the towns below are also sending messages. The ancestors are confused. They land at the wrong airport. Cows, Pigs, Wars, and Witches by Marvin Harris. The cargo cult phenomenon is, to quote-unquote Western ears, so bizarre as to be unreal. Beginning in the 1910s, groups of Melanesian natives, through a variety of different movements, prepared for their ancestors to come back and usher in a new age. The ancestors would not come empty-handed, however. The new age would be marked by the delivery of cargo. Food, modern tools, cars, motorcycles, airplanes, even in some tellings, refrigerators. The Europeans who witnessed cargo cults viewed them as both a strange native practice beyond understanding and as a threat and suppressed them wherever possible. Moreover, Cargo cult took on a life of its own, both in the minds of quote-unquote Western laypeople and academics. But the deeper that you dive into cargo cults, the more complex the conundrum gets. Today, we'll spend some time exploring the cargo cult phenomenon, why it fascinates us, and why it matters. Part 1. In the first part of the podcast, we'll discuss the history that led to the creation of cargo cults, what those cargo cults did, and the conception of the cargo cult in the popular Western imagination. The cargo cult phenomenon is largely unique to Melanesia. Thus, in order to talk about cargo cults, we need to lay down some context about Melanesia. Melanesia is a group of islands in the Pacific Ocean that contains what we today refer to as Papua New Guinea, Vanuatu, the Solomon Islands, and Fiji. That being said, it's hard to place borders on the region. Um, paraphrased from Wikipedia, Paul Silito wrote, it is not easy to define precisely on geographical, cultural, biological, or any other grounds where Melanesia ends and the neighboring region begins. He ultimately concludes that the region is, quote, a historical category which evolved in the 19th century from the discoveries made in the Pacific and that has been legitimated by use and further research in the region. It covers populations that have a certain linguistic, biological, and cultural affinity, a certain ill-defined sameness, which shades off at its margins into difference. Uh, That quote is from uh, Paul *An introduction to the anthropology of Melanesia. Linguistically and culturally, Melanesia is exceedingly diverse. A 2012 research paper stated that there are over 1,300 languages used in Melanesia, making it the most linguistically diverse area in the world. Uh, That is from Landwehr and Unseth's An Introduction to Language Use in Melanesia uh, in the International Journal of the Sociology of Language in 2012. Melanesian religious belief and practice is as diverse as its languages, and it's hard to generalize too much about Melanesian religious practice. That being said... Uh, based on my reading of Gary Tromp's Melanesian religion, I I think that Melanesian religion contains some themes that are significant in understanding the cargo cult phenomenon. One, pre-contact Melanesian society was organized in large part on the basis of webs of social obligations. These social obligations were incurred both in day-to-day life and in special circumstances. For example, a local big man might throw a feast for other people in his village, who would then be obligated to think on the big man and repay him in some way. Big men were often both secular and religious leaders. 2. Ancestors were viewed as important figures in the everyday religious practice of Melanesians. Dead ancestors were never viewed as being very far away and were often viewed as being available to help with tasks if properly invoked. Some Melanesian groups even held that the dead went to just a different physical location nearby. Three, Melanesian religious practice was closely related to secular day-to-day work and work, such as farming, etc., was viewed as a combination both of religious and secular activity. 5. Melanesian religious practices generally explained why people succeeded or failed in terms of a quote-unquote retributive logic. That is to say that people succeeded or failed to the extent they lived up to their obligations to others, properly performed the rituals, and to the extent that they received assistance from their ancestors. 6. Religious beliefs and practices were fluid and pragmatic, Religious rituals were developed or abandoned based on whether or not they accomplished the intended result. Beliefs frequently evolved, particularly as a consequence of dream states and visions incurred by individuals. These dream states and visions were viewed as important ways of developing and transmitting religious practices. Although understanding traditional Melanesian religious practice is helpful context to understand the cargo cult phenomenon, cargo cults did not arise spontaneously out of traditional Melanesian religion. They were closely linked to the presence of outsiders in Melanesia. Now, a comprehensive history of the European exploitation of Melanesia is beyond the scope of this podcast, but I do think a brief overview is helpful to understand what's going on here. Outside contact with Melanesians dates back to the 17th century, I believe. However, Europeans began exploiting Melanesia in earnest in the mid 19th century. The Germans were the first nation to colonize Melanesia. From the beginning of German colonization in earnest, the Melanesians tried to integrate the German colonizers into their worldview. In some cases, the Melanesians used the tools, such as lanterns, used by the Germans as divine and entertained the possibility that Germans were ancestors returned from the dead, divine messengers or spirits. From the 1880s to 1914, Germany began to set up systematic colonial administrations throughout Melanesia. This process involved a number of steps. One, the Germans expropriated Melanesian land for farming in vast quantities. Two, they also attempted to conscript Melanesians for a number of enterprises. Most importantly, the Germans tried to get Melanesians to give up their traditional lifestyles to harvest copra, a product that comes from young coconuts and that's used in the production of coconut oil. Now, for a number of reasons, the Germans had very limited success getting Melanesians to give up their traditional lifestyles and getting them to harvest copra. Three, at the same time, a variety of missionary groups set up missions in Melanesia to try to convert the natives to Christianity. The missionaries took varying approaches to incorporating existing Melanesian religion into their preaching. Some tried to suppress Melanesian religion altogether, while others tried to explain how Christianity fit into and superseded Melanesian religion. After 1914, Australian colonizers replaced the German colonial administration and established their own. To try to make Melanesians finally give up their native lifestyles and begin growing and harvesting copra, the Australians imposed a head tax on working males. The head tax created significant problems for Melanesians. Practically speaking, the only source of funds for the head tax was working for Australian copra farmers. This forced Melanesians to give up their lifestyles and become subservient to the Australian copra production process on pain of imprisonment or fines. As Melanesians started to buy European goods with their newfound and extremely limited wages, their dependency on European goods and European lifestyles increased. Missionary education also was used to encourage dependence on labor for the Australians, although conflicts between missionaries and the colonial administration were not uncommon. As a result of this change in their underlying economy, Melanesians were suddenly at the mercy of changes in copra pricing. The price of copra was fairly volatile from World War I to World War II, and price and wage changes frequently led to Melanesian famine and hardship. During World War II, the Japanese took over several major Melanesian islands, Copra production was not as significant to Japanese strategic objectives, so production generally declined and the Japanese gave the Melanesians more leeway than the Australians. However, as the war progressed and Japanese resources dwindled, the Japanese soldiers took Melanesian goods and committed other acts of violence against them. Near the end of the war, Allied forces retook the Melanesian islands. Throughout this process, Both the Allied and Japanese forces wrought immense destruction on Melanesia. The Melanesian economy and the livelihoods of many Melanesians were wiped out. To facilitate redevelopment of the island's colonial economy, the Australians reinstalled their colonial administration and began making significant redevelopment payments to the region. Copra production resumed partially on the basis of, frankly, unfulfilled promises of further economic development. Unsurprisingly, the colonization of Melanesia put significant stress on the Melanesian people. Beginning in the mid-19-teens, colonizers and missionaries began to describe a set of diverse, sometimes contradictory movements that took on the name Cargo Cult. In this next part of the podcast, I'll discuss a few of the most significant Cargo Cults to help illustrate the nature and evolution of Cargo Cult practices. First, the Vilala Madness. One of the first cargo cults was centered around visions that caused its adherents to believe that the dead would return in a ghost steamship, carrying tinned meat, supplies, tools, and weapons. Some versions of the vision involved the expulsion of the European colonizers. In preparation for the return of the ancestors, the adherents began a number of new practices, New moral codes were established, and artifacts used in ancient ritual were publicly destroyed. Adherents raised flagpoles, which were used as tools to communicate with ancestors, possibly in imitation of radio towers. Speaking in tongues and possession were also reported. Adherents established new rituals in anticipation of the ghost ship's arrival. These included outfitting adherents with mock rifles and military gear and engaging in regular Western-style military drills, and a ritual which closely resembled a European tea time where adherents would decorate tables with flowers and food and share them in a ritual meal. Another cult, the Tarot Cult, which appears to have been both a millennial or end-of-the-world movement and an attempt to establish a new set of agricultural practices, involved both the establishment of new rituals and the discontinuance of old ones. In particular, adherents established new taboos on killing certain animals, new taboos on eating certain types of food, new cooking, planting, and ritual eating practices, including something similar to the European tea time ceremony I described before, and new religious practices, including shaking fits, collapsing, and possession. Next, the Mambu movement, established by Mambu in the 1930s, was particularly influential in understanding subsequent cargo cults. Mambu was a plantation worker who converted to Roman Catholicism uh, because of missionary activity and helped Catholic missionaries at church services. One day, Mambu was reprimanded after arriving at church early and preparing religious uh, materials that were ordinarily prepared by the priest. Later, he began diverging from Catholic practice in relatively minor ways, such as uh, standing when he would have been expected to kneel, stuff like that. Mambu eventually broke from Catholic practice altogether, stating that he had received a vision that the ancestors, located in a volcano on Monom Island, were preparing cargo for the Melanesians. As before, this cargo would include tinned meat, other food, resources, tools, weapons and vehicles. Mambu began engaging in practices that were both millennial and subversive of the colonial government. In particular, he began referring to himself as the Black King and took on a role somewhere between that of a prophet and a deity, taking on followers and foregoing taking a wife or engaging in sexual intercourse. He began demanding that Melanesians cease paying their head taxes to the colonial administration and instructing them to pay the head taxes to him and his followers instead. Adherents gave up work on the Australian plantations and began engaging in practices designed to prepare for the imminent arrival of cargo. These included building storage sheds for the cargo and new temples. Adherents gave up traditional clothing and rituals, and they began taking on new rituals where they had their genitals baptized, engaged in ritual sexual intercourse, and changed their clothing to emulate European clothing. This, uh, This work caught the attention of local authorities, and Mambu was eventually jailed for six months. Finally, during the course of World War II, he disappeared and was never seen again. Nevertheless, the Mambu movement persisted after the war and was the focus of an excellent book by Kenham Burridge called Mambu, A Melanesian Millennium, which, as well as work by Lamont Lindstrom, is the basis for the summary I've just described. Next, the John Frum movement, which also began in the 1930s, is a cargo cult that continues to the present day. If you checked out the picture set I put up on our Facebook page last week, the pictures include contemporary John Frum adherents and rituals, I'll post the link again in the show notes notes if you haven't seen it. John Frum was supposed to have been either a native Melanesian or a spirit who appeared to Melanesians who were drinking kava, which was a beverage consumed by Melanesians socially for relaxing effects. Um, Not quite a beer, but you get the idea. John Frum prophesied that he would return to the Melanesians bearing cargo and that whites would leave, ushering in a new age of prosperity and ease. In some versions, black people would develop white skin and white people would become black. Further, new islands would develop and old islands would sink into the sea and the world would be radically changed. John Frum told the Melanesians to go back to their traditional practices and rituals and give up all aspects of the colonial life. Specifically, John Frum told his adherents to give up Christian religion, plantation work, and Australian money. The relationship between the John Frum movement and Australian money is especially fascinating. Adherents of the John Frum movement believe that having Australian money would prevent John Frum from returning. In some cases, adherents believe that John Frum would bring new money, marked with coconuts. Because the John Frum movement required getting rid of Australian money, adherents often spent lavishly to rid themselves of the money. John Frum adherents also developed quote-unquote wireless communications with the ancestors, claimed to receive written messages from heaven, and engaged in military drills with mock wooden rifles. The John Frum movement became increasingly traditionally politically active in the 1970s and survives in some form to the present day. Next, the Yali movement. the Yali movement, which was prominent during and after World War II, is perhaps the best example of a mature cargo cult movement. Yali was a Melanesian who worked closely with the Australian government and was involved in the Allied military effort during World War II. In addition to working with Australians and assisting in the spread of Christianity through through Melanesia, Yali visited Australia on two occasions. Yali's first visit to Australia was an important event that shaped his worldview going forward. When visiting Queensland, Yali saw Melanesian artifacts on display in a natural history museum. This conflicted with what he saw of missionary activities, where Melanesian ritual and religious practice was disregarded as useless and misguided. Yali thus came to believe that both European and Melanesian cultural and religious practices had a role to play in understanding the world around him. After the war, Yali was hired by the Australian administration to encourage Australian development and to combat the spread of cargo cult movements. At the behest of the Australians, he also established and enforced a set of rules for natives. In exchange, Australians promised that they would bring electricity, housing, and other infrastructure to the native populations. At one point, Yali was brought back to Australia, where he saw yet more of the wealth enjoyed by Australians. Despite Yali's attempts to convince the native populations not to believe in cargo cults, Yali was widely viewed as having the ability to bring cargo, and Yali himself was ambivalent towards his own ability to bring cargo. As a result, many people believed that Yali would return from his second Australian trip with cargo. During the second trip, he had several important conversations with locals, specifically He learned that many Australians did not take Christianity seriously, but instead believed in a new theory, evolution. Yali understood evolution to mean that Europeans secretly believed that they descended from totemic animals, much like the natives did. Based on this, Yali, like several other cargo cult leaders, came to the conclusion that Europeans were hiding secret knowledge that would enable the Melanesians to obtain cargo. Yali thus became disillusioned with the Australians and encouraged natives to give up European practices. The cults surrounding him came to the belief that a figure, somewhere between an ancestral culture hero of the Melanesians named Kilobob and Jesus Christ, lived in heaven. Heaven was above Sydney, Australia and could be reached by a ladder connecting the two. The Yali movement combined this eschatological end-of-the-world worldview with a very active political program and eventually ran into some very real trouble as Yali attempted to enforce rules on other, uh, other natives and was eventually accused of rape and arrested. However, even after the Yali movement lost its momentum, Yali was released from imprisonment and maintained status as a political and religious figure in his own right, His powers as a religious figure were frankly kind of strange. He was believed to have prophetic powers and his semen was actually collected in connection with certain religious rituals. Yali lived a full life and died in 1976, uh, shortly after New Guinea uh, achieved independence. As all of these examples illustrate, the cargo cult phenomenon arose in various forms throughout the early and mid 20th century in Melanesia. The cargo cults included other beliefs that seemed very strange to us. For instance, many cargo cultists thought that the Europeans were hiding secret rituals that they could use to get the cargo, and some cargo cultists tried to smash together elements of Christian and Melanesian religion, claiming, for instance, that biblical figures were Melanesian. One particularly interesting variant of this theory was that missionaries were hiding certain pages of the Bible that revealed that Jesus was Melanesian. The Australian administration, unsurprisingly, viewed these practices as very strange, but they did not view them as harmless, particularly since they were often tied to a decline in copra production. The administration tried to suppress these movements by a variety of means, including gentle and not-so-gentle encouragement, using Indigenous people to try to convince other Indigenous people, and jailing group leaders and their adherents. In fact, during many of the uh, time periods in which the books that I read in connection with this were written, uh, cargo cult practice was illegal and was punishable by jail, beatings, fines, all sorts of nasty stuff. Now, outside of Melanesia, the cargo cult movement captured the Western popular imagination and appeared in a variety of contexts. In a commencement address delivered to Caltech in 1974, Richard Feynman, the Nobel Prize-winning physicist, discussed cargo cults in describing failures of the scientific method. He said, quote, I think the educational and psychological studies I mentioned are examples of what I would like to call cargo cult science. In the South Seas, there is a cargo cult of people. During the war, they saw airplanes land with lots of good materials, and they want the same thing to happen now. So they've arranged to make things like runways, to put fires along the sides of the runways, to make a wooden hut for a man to sit in with two wooden pieces on his head like headphones and bars of bamboo sticking out like antennas. He's the controller. And they wait for the airplanes to land. They're doing everything right. The form is perfect. It looks exactly the way it looked before. But it doesn't work. No airplanes land. So I call these things cargo cult science, because they follow all the apparent precepts and forms of scientific investigation, but they're missing something essential, because the planes don't land. End quote. This conception of the cargo cult as bizarre, unscientific thinking that indigenous populations unthinkingly practiced didn't die out in the 70s. In 2000, Steve McConnell, a software engineer, coined the term cargo cult software engineering also referred to as cargo cult programming. McConnell obviously had Feynman's description of cargo cult science in mind when he articulated this idea. Quote, They go through the motions of looking like effective organizations that are stylistically similar, but without any real understanding of why the practices work, they're essentially just sticking pieces of bamboo in their ears and hoping their projects will land safely. Many of their projects end up crashing because these are just two different varieties of cargo cult software engineering, similar in their lack of understanding of what makes software projects work. Uh, skipping ahead a little bit. When presented with more effective new practices, cargo cult software engineers prefer to stay in their wooden huts of familiar, comfortable, and not necessarily effective work habits. Doing the same thing again and again and expecting different results is a sign of insanity, the old saying goes. It's also a sign of cargo cult software engineering. This term also appears in business consulting literature. For instance, in my research, I found an article on a management consultant's website that told a story similar to that of the uh, cargo cult story told by Feynman. As these examples illustrate, The cargo cult has taken on a life of its own in the popular discourse as a myth. This myth repurposes the story of the cargo cult into a cautionary tale of unsophisticated quote-unquote savages copying sophisticated Europeans without understanding why they do the things that they do. Obviously, this explanation is rooted in some very problematic views about race and indigenous people. It's also really unsatisfying. However, At the same time as cargo cults diffused through popular culture, scholars attempted to make sense of the cargo cult phenomenon in a more meaningful way. Next, we'll discuss some of those theories. Anthropologists and other academics have developed a variety of explanations for cargo cults. In particular, I think there are two theories that are especially interesting. First, the cargo cult phenomenon represents a form of resistance or class struggle against the colonizing Europeans. Scholars who advocate for this theory argue that Melanesian armed resistance would be futile against the Europeans. They also point to a number of elements that were common to many cargo cults that suggest that the real purpose of cargo cults was to impede European copra production and culture. Uh, For example, they point to giving up Christianity and going back to traditional forms of work. Even actions that are not readily understandable, such as destroying goods, can arguably be explained in terms of resistance. In the words of Eric Hobsbawm, Destruction is not simply a nihilistic release, but a futile attempt to eliminate all that would prevent the construction of a simple, stable peasant community, the products of luxury, the great enemy of justice and fair dealing. For destruction is never indiscriminate. What is useful for poor men is spared. From Primitive Rebels. Uh, Hobsbawm didn't write directly about cargo cults himself, but other authors, such as Peter Lawrence, applied a similar model to cargo cults. The evolution of cargo cult movements can also be explained to some extent by this conflict theory. Hobsbawm, again, contrasted millenarian movements with revolutionary movements. He distinguished the two by saying that millenarian movements expected the revolutionary change to happen by itself or by divine intervention while truly revolutionary movements attempted to make revolutionary changes. Over time, Hobsbawm thought that movements in the middle that became more millenarian, for example because revolutionary activity failed or was futile, became increasingly inward-looking. Quote, They may withdraw into a passionate inner life of the movement, or the sect, leaving the rest of the world to its own devices, except for some token assertions of millennial hopes and perhaps of the millennial program." End quote. This seems to be a good theory of why individual cargo cults, as they evolve, become more focused on rituals and less focused on more overt forms of resistance, or why the John Frum movement became part mainstream politics and part ritual. I happen to think this is a pretty good theory for a number of reasons, For example, I think it does a good job of explaining why cargo cultists stopped working on copra farms and why the government thought the movements were so dangerous. But I acknowledge it's not completely satisfied. For example, if cargo cults are intended to be a form of cultural resistance against Europeans, why adopt European-style tea times? Why did some cargo cults believe that their skin would become white once the cargo arrived? In short, why did these movements which were supposed to push back against European production and culture, look so European. The second theory is that the cargo cult phenomenon is an adjustment of traditional religious practices to account for the radical changes brought about by observing Europeans. Theorists uh, who, who advocate this approach, like Ken Omburridge, who we talked about earlier, point to certain elements of Melanesian religious practice, such as the beliefs that people could call upon their ancestors for help through a combination of material and ritual work, that people who did ritual work more successfully than others were materially rewarded, and that rituals could be abandoned when they didn't work, and that individuals could receive new rituals and visions. In the words of Ken Elmurridge, quote, Cargo movements represent a growth, an attempt at synthesis, a movement of values springing out of precedent systems of values. Put another way, These theorists would argue that cargo cults occurred because Melanesians applied their religious principles when the Europeans arrived, decided that their religious practices were less successful than those of the Europeans, and created cargo rituals as an interpretation of what it was that the Europeans were doing that got them cargo in an attempt to bring about a a new world, or a new life, or a new person. That might seem strange to us. From our standpoint, we might say, well, gee, it's obvious that somebody at a factory somewhere put this food in a can and shipped it to an Australian in Papua New Guinea. However, it's important to think of this from the Melanesian perspective. Melanesians saw Europeans, who didn't appear to be doing any actual work like bureaucrats, engaging in complicated rituals like calling people up on phones, and later receiving goods. Without knowing how the immense economic machine behind the European production process worked, it'd be very reasonable to conclude that the Europeans were creating goods by performing rituals. However, I don't think this is a particularly satisfying theory either. It does do a good job of explaining some of the, uh, the syncretism or smashing together that occurred in cargo cult movements. It also does a good job of addressing how Melanesian culture attempted to respond to Melanesians being devalued by European colonizers. But I don't think it does a good job of explaining the anti-European elements of cargo cults, which I think are significant. So where do we go next? We've got a couple of theories that are better than quote well the natives are just copying Europeans because they don't understand things end quote, but both of them are far from perfect. In fact, One thing you might have noticed, if you're like me, is that there's a lot of different stuff going on with cargo cults, some of which is contradictory or otherwise hard to reconcile. In response to this, some scholars have asked a deeper question. What if the stories we tell about cargo cults are really stories about ourselves? What I mean by the statement that the stories we tell about cargo cults are really stories about ourselves is something like this. One, what we refer to as cargo cults are a diverse, contradictory set of practices. Two, when anthropologists and other scholars research cultural practices, they understand those practices through the lens of their own culture. Three, the obsession with cargo cults and the theories that academics develop to explain why cargo cults do what they do aren't really theories that explain the Melanesians and their culture. Instead, They're stories that explain Western culture and the way that Westerners think and act. Lamont Lindstrom, an anthropologist who studies cargo cults, has written a great deal about this topic. In his own words, quote, We relish cargo cult narratives because they are parables about our desire. We find reassurance in strange tales of people who are madly in love with what they cannot have. Cargo cult stories function to naturalize our mode of desire. In particular, Lindstrom identifies three types of stories that can help us understand why cargo cults are so fascinating to us. These are, one, the Bildungsroman, or coming-of-age story. In this story, we fundamentally agree that getting cargo is good, and it's something that the Melanesians should get. As time goes on, they work through various ways of attempting to get cargo, and we usually end these stories with some kind of discussion of how the Melanesians, uh, or us could achieve prosperity if they get education or development or something like that. Not that these aren't good things, it's just that we're kind of reinforcing the views about how we achieve material prosperity. Both of the books on the Mambu and Yali movements that I read in connection with the research for this podcast are examples of these kinds of stories. They act as guiding or cautionary tales. The second kind of story that Lindstrom identifies is the carnival. In this story, we focus on how the cargo cultists reveal some sort of truth about cargo, that is to say, modernity writ large, usually from a standpoint of being critical about modernity. Lindstrom points to poems written by Thomas Merton in the 1960s about cargo cults that celebrated the cultists. These stories allow us to critique our own culture from the view of an outsider. And last, the horror story. In this story, both the attainment of cargo, i.e. modernity, and its cult practices are viewed critically. Lindstrom uses a children's novel, written in the 1980s about cargo cults, as an example of this. In the novel, an art collector trades cargo with the Melanesians in exchange for their traditional carvings. And frankly, it ends in disaster for everyone these stories act as both cultural critique and cautionary tale this isn't to say that Lindstrom doesn't believe that cargo cults aren't real but cargo cults are a complicated phenomenon and many of the tales we tell about them are affected by the desire to create a myth about cargo cults that resonates with our own culture thus we close with another mystery how much can we even rely on the stories? That scholars tell about cargo cults? Have we overstated their importance or the nature of cargo cult practices just to tell stories that are interesting to us? At the beginning of this podcast, I said that the deeper you dive into cargo cults, the more complex the conundrum gets. We've traced the history of cargo cults from the earliest days of European colonization and through a variety of complex theories that might explain why the cargo cultists did what they did. And We finally landed on a very postmodern reflection that maybe the stories we tell about cargo cults are really stories about us. The cargo cult illustrates a great deal about myth both in reflections on cargo cults themselves and reflections on the stories we tell about cargo cults. Most importantly, the cargo cult teaches us about the importance of critically examining the world around us and the narratives we construct about it. Again, I hope you enjoyed listening to this episode as much as I enjoyed making it. If you like what you hear, please give us a 5-star rating in the iTunes Store, as that'll help people discover the podcast. And if you enjoy the podcast, I'd also love for you to share it with your friends and family. Next time on Dial-A-Myth, we'll be discussing Forest Fen's treasure. About eight years ago, an elderly art collector hid a million dollars worth of treasure somewhere north of Santa Fe. Since that time, a burgeoning community of treasure hunters have unsuccessfully been drawn in by the thrill of the chase. That chase proven deadly in at least four cases. Is the treasure real? What do we know about it? What can the thrill of the chase and the treasure waiting at its end tell us about ourselves? I hope you'll join me in a couple of weeks for the next episode of dialo myth I promise it'll be wild.